Chapter 1, Part 3 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1, by John Bagnall Barry. Chapter 1, Part 3 Mycenaean Civilization, 1600 to 1100 BC. The rise of a civilization on Greek soil, very similar to Cretan and undoubtedly under Cretan influence, began probably in the 16th century and lasted till the end of the 12th. Its records are monuments of stone which have remained for more than 3,000 years above the face of the earth or have been brought to light by the spade, and the objects of daily use and luxury which are placed in the houses of the dead, and have been unearthed, chiefly in our days, by the curiosity of Europeans seeking the origins of their own civilization. And for the later stage of this period we have the Homeric poems. The most numerous and significant records have been found in the east of the Peloponnesus, and the plain of Argos, at Mycenae, which keeps guard in the mountains at the northern end of the plain, and at Tyrans, its lowlier fellow close to the sea. The richest and strongest city on the coast of the Aegean seems for a long time to have been Mycenae. The memory of its wealth survived in the epithet Golden, which distinguishes it in the Homeric poems. For want of an exact term, the whole civilization to which Mycenae's greatness belongs has been called Mycenaean. Tyrans was the older of the two fortresses, and had played its part in the earlier epoch before the Aegean peoples had yet emerged from the Stone Age. It stands on a long low rock about a mile and a half from the sea, and the land around it was once a marsh. From north to south the hill rises in height, and was shaped by man's hand into three platforms, of which the southern and highest was occupied by the palace of the king but the whole Acropolis was strongly walled round by a structure of massive stones, laid in regular layers but rudely dressed, the crevices being filled with a mortar of clay. This fashion of building has been called Cyclopean, from the legend that masons called Cyclopes were invited from Lycia to build the walls of Tyrans. The main gate of entrance, on the east side, was approached by a passage between the outer wall of the fortress and the wall of the palace and the right, unshielded side of an enemy advancing to the gate, was exposed to the defenders on the castle wall. On the west side there was a postern, from which a long flight of stone steps led up to the back part of the palace. But one curious feature in the castle of Tyrans sets it apart from all the other ancient fortresses of Greece. On the south side the wall deepens, for the purpose of containing store chambers, the doors of which open out upon covered galleries, also built inside the wall, and furnished with windows looking outward. The stronghold of Mycenae, about twelve miles inland, at the northeastern end of the Argive plain, was built on a hill which rises to nine hundred feet above the sea level in a mountain glen. The shape of the citadel is a triangle, and the greater part of the wall is built in the same Cyclopean style as the wall of Tyrans, but of smaller stones. Another fashion of architecture, however, also occurs, and points to a later date than Tyrans. 
The gates and some of the towers are built of even layers of stone, carefully hewn into rectangular shape. No storerooms or galleries like those of Tyrants have been found at Mycenae, but on the northeast side a vaulted stone passage in the wall led, by a downward subterranean path, to the foot of the hill, where a cistern was supplied from a perennial spring outside the walls. Thus the garrison was furnished with water in case of a siege. Mycenae had two gates. The chief was on the west, ensconced in a corner of the wall, which at this point, running in southeastward, then turned outward due west, and thus enclosed and commanded the approach to the gate. The lintel of the doorway is formed by one huge square block of stone, and the weight of the wall resting on it is lightened by the device of leaving a triangular space. This opening is filled by a sculptured stone relief representing two lionesses standing opposite each other on either side of a pillar, on whose pedestal their forepaws rest. They are, as it were, watchers who ward the castle, and from them the gate is known as the Lion Gate. The ruins on the hill of Tyrans enable us to trace the plan of the palace of its kings. One chief principle of the construction of the palaces of this age seems to have been the separation of the dwelling-house of the women from that of the men, a principle which continued to prevail in Greek domestic architecture in historical times. But the striking characteristic of Tyrans is that, while the halls of the king and the halls of the queen are built side by side in the center of the palace, there is no direct communication between them, and they have different approaches. The halls of king and queen alike are built on the same general plan as the palace in the old brick city on the hill of Troy, and the palaces which are described in the poems of Homer. An altar stood in the men's courtyard, which was enclosed by pillared porticos, the portico which faced the gate being the vestibule of the house. Double-leaf doors opened from the vestibule into a preliminary hall, from which one passed through a curtained doorway over a great stone threshold into the men's hall. In the midst of it was the round hearth, the center of the house, encircled by four wooden pillars which supported the flat roof. The palace of Mycenae crowned the highest part of the hill, and its plan, though it cannot be traced so clearly or fully, was in general conception and in many details alike. The hearth, of which part remains, was ornamented by spiral and triangular patterns in red, blue, and white. The floors of the covered rooms were made of fine cement, and in the open courts the cement was hardened by small pebbles. Sometimes the floors are brightened with colored patterns. It was customary to embellish the walls by inlet sculptured friezes and by paintings. A brilliant alabaster frieze, inset with cyanus or paste of blue glass, decorated the vestibule of the hall at Tyrans, and the men's halls in both palaces were adorned with mural pictures. The design and structure of these palaces differ in some notable respects from those of Crete. They were protected by strong exterior walls, while Gnosis and Festus had no such fortifications. In the milder climate of Crete, portable braziers were sufficient for heating the rooms, and the architects could plan their houses without having to make holes in the roof for smoke to escape, whereas the severe weather of Greece rendered a fixed hearth necessary in the center of the chief hall, with a vent above for the smoke. This hall, with its pillared portico, became the most important part of the palace, and it was lit from above. 
the light wells characteristic of gnosis and Phaestus, were not used in the castles of the mainland besides their castle and palace the burying places of the kings of mycenae are their most striking memorials the men with whom we are now dealing bestowed their dead in tombs there is no trace of the practice of burning corpses at one time the lords of the citadel and their families were buried on the castle hill close to the western wall south of the lion gate the royal burial circle has been discovered within which six tombs cut vertically into the rock had remained untouched by the hand of man since the last corpses were placed in them weapons were buried with the men some of whose faces were covered with gold masks the heads of the women were decked with gold diadems rich ornaments and things of household use were placed beside them there was a stele or sepulchral stone over each tomb and some of these slabs were sculptured but a day came when this simple kind of grave was no longer royal enough for the rich princes of mycenae and they sought more imposing resting-places or else as some believe they were overthrown by lords of another race who brought with them a new fashion of sepulchre nine sepulchral domes hewn in the opposite hillside have been found not far from the acropolis the largest of them is generally known as the treasury of atreus a name which arose from a false idea as to its purpose these tombs which are found as we shall see in other places in greece consist of three parts the passage of approach the portal and the dome a stone causeway leads up to the portal which admits into a round vaulted chamber built into the hollowed slope of a hill and in some tombs but this is exceptional there is also a square side chamber the portal of the treasury of atreus had a striking facade being clad with slabs of colored marble and framed by dark gray alabaster pillars with zigzag and spiral patterns and carved capitals the two massive lintel stones were relieved by the same device which was adopted in the architecture of the lion gate and the triangle was filled by red porphyry the vaulted room of beehive shape is formed by rings of well-joined and well-chiseled stones which grow narrower as they rise and a roof stone the walls were adorned with bronze rosettes arranged in some pattern a door similar to that of the portal and framed with pillars admits to the side chamber which is hewn into the rock its walls were decorated with sculptured alabaster plates the doorway of another tomb was framed by two alabaster columns fluted like the columns of a doric temple but besides the stately burying places of the kings the humbler tombs of the people have been discovered the town of mycenae below the citadel consisted of a group of villages each of which preserved its separate identity each had its own burying ground thus mycenae and probably other towns of the age represented an intermediate stage between the village and the city a number of little communities gathered together in one place and dominated by a fortress the tombs in these village burying grounds resemble in plan the royal vaults they are square chambers cut into the rock they are approached by a passage which leads up to a doorway the difference is that they are not round and have gabled roofs some of the things found in these sepulchres indicate that most of them are a later date than the royal tombs of the citadel and contemporary with the vaulted tombs below 
We have seen how, in the royal graves on the castle hill, treasures of gold, long hidden from the light of day, revealed the wealth of the Mycenaean kingdom. Treasures would perhaps have been found also in some of the great vaulted tombs if they had not been rifled by plunderers in subsequent ages. But for us, the works of the potter, and the implements of war and peace fashioned by the bronze smith, are of more value than the golden ornaments for studying this early civilization and things of daily use have been found in the lowlier rock tombs, as well as in the royal sepulchres of hill or plain. From the implements which the people used, and also from the representations which artists wrought, we can win a rough picture of their dress, armor, and ornaments, and form an idea of their capacity in art. Their civilization belonged to the age of bronze and copper, even in its later period, iron was still so rare and costly that it was only used for ornaments, rings, for instance, and possibly for money. And in its earlier period, the Stone Age had not quite been forgotten. Obsidian was still employed for the heads of arrows. But in general, bronze was used in Greece for all implements throughout this age. The arms with which the men of Mycenae attacked their foes were sword, spear, and bow. Their defensive armor consisted of huge helmets, probably made of leather, shields of oxhide reaching from the neck almost to the feet, complete towers of defense, but so clumsy that it was the chief part of a military education to manage them. The princes went forth to war in two-horsed war chariots, which consisted of a board to stand on and a breastwork of wicker. The fragment of a silver vessel, found in one of the rock tombs of Mycenae, shows us a scene of battle in front of the walls of a mountain city, from whose battlements women watching the fight are waving their hands. Round shields came into use later. Among the pottery discovered at Mycenae there was a large jar, on one side of which we see a woman looking after six warriors with round shields, marching forth to battle armed from head to foot and on the other, less clearly, men engaged in battle, black-brown figures on a yellow ground. On gems and seal-stones we also find representations of armed men. One of the most striking pictures of the warriors of this age is a group of five spearmen with round shields on a painted gravestone. Men wore long hair, not, however, flowing freely, but tied or plaited in tresses. Razors have been found in the tombs, but, in contrast with the Cretans, who always shaved, they often let the beard grow. It is not certain that they ever went naked with mere loin aprons, like the Cretans. In later times they wore a close-fitting tunic and a cloak fastened by a clasp-pin. High-born dames wore tight bodices and wide-gown skirts. Frontlets, or bands around the brow, were a distinction of their attire and they wore their hair high, coiled in rings, letting the ends fall behind. The ornaments which have been found in the royal tombs show that the queens of Mycenae appeared in glittering gold array. The Mycenaean pottery has given a clue for fixing the earlier and later epochs of the civilization which produced it, and enables us to say that, for instance, the vaulted sepulchres of the plain were subsequent to the shaft sepulchres on the castle hill of Mycenae. The painted vessels of the second millennium fall into two general classes, unglazed and glazed. The unglazed, ornamented chiefly with lines and spirals, were older, and when the glazed style attained its perfection, went almost entirely out of use. 
In the varnished jars, the development of the handicraft from the cruder work of the earlier potters can be traced through the best period into an age of decadence, when the Mycenaean comes into competition with other and newer styles. The color of these vessels in the best age is warm, varying from yellow to dark brown, and sometimes burnt into a rich deep red. A new impulse of decoration has come upon the potters. The ornaments are no longer lines and spirals, but vegetables and animals, especially of the sea kingdom, fishes, polypods, seaweeds. On the other hand, sphinxes, griffins, lotus flowers, and other oriental and Egyptian subjects, though common elsewhere in Mycenaean ornaments, are hardly ever copied by the workers in clay. The curious false-necked jars, which have no opening above the neck, but a spout at the side, are one of the most characteristic products of the potteries which we call Mycenaean. Other marks for fixing the relative dates of Mycenaean troves are stone tools and iron, if, for example, we find in one tomb obsidian spearheads and no trace of iron, and in another no stone implements but iron rings, it is a safe inference that the first is older than the second. The occurrence of iron is a mark of comparative lateness. It is by such marks as these that we are able to say that the kings of the shaft graves reigned before the kings who were buried in the vaulted tombs, and that remains which have been found in the island of Thura belong to the beginning of the Mycenaean age. The remains at Mycenae and Tyrans are, taken in their entirety, the most impressive of the memorials of the civilization of the Greek mainland in the Bronze Age. Close to Sparta, on high ground on the east bank of the Eurotas, there was an unwalled stronghold which perished in a conflagration, and in later times was associated with the name of King Menelaus. And, not too far to the south, at Amycle, which was in early ages perhaps the most important place in the Laconian Vale, there has been discovered a lordly tomb, which, unlike the treasury of Atreus, was never invaded by robbers. In this vault, among other costly treasures, were found the most precious of all the works of Cretan art that have yet been drawn forth from the earth, two golden cups on which a metal worker of matchless skill has wrought vivid scenes of the snaring and capturing of wild bulls. In Attica there are many relics. On the Athenian Acropolis there are a few stones supposed to belong to a palace of great antiquity, but we can look with more certainty on some of the ancient foundations of the fortress wall. This wall was called Pelargic or Pelasgic by the Athenians, and it seems likely that the word preserves the name of the ancient inhabitants of the place, the Pelasgoi. But the Pelasgians of Athens were not the only people of the Athenian plain. Towards the north end of this plain, a vaulted tomb seems to record ancient princes of Acarni. The lords of Thoricus had tombs of the same fashion, and at Eleusis there is similar evidence. In many other places in Attica, graves of this period have been found. At Prasii, a number of remarkable rock tombs, resembling those in the lower town of Mycenae. In Boeotia there are some striking memorials. Remains of a palace, with some traces of wall paintings, have been found on Cadmia, the citadel of historic Thebes. On the western shores of the great Copaic Marsh, a people dwelled whose wealth was proverbial, and their city, or commonus, shared with Mycenae the attribute of golden in the Homeric poems. Paintings on the walls of their palace represented scenes from the sports of the bull ring, 
and pillar shrines, which must have been executed by artists of the same school as those who wrought at Knossos. One of their kings built a great sepulchral vault under the hill of the citadel, and later generations took it for a treasury. It approached, though it did not quite attain to, the size of the treasure house of Atreus itself, and it had a second chamber covered by a stone ceiling, which was adorned with a curious design in low relief, an arrangement of meandering spirals and fan-shaped leaves bordered by rosettes, producing the effect of a carpet. The same design, which decked the burying-place of Orcominus in stone, was used by the painters of some lord of Tyrants to adorn the walls of his palace, and one is tempted to see both in the ceiling and in the sepulchre the work of craftsmen from Crete. But in any case, the common design of ceiling and painting is borrowed from Egypt, for we find almost the same design on the ceilings of tombs at Egyptian Thebes. The lords of Orchomenus were probably the mightiest lords in Boeotia, but they had neighbors, were they rivals or friends, in another fastness of the Copaic Marsh. While Orchomenus was situated by the western shores, this primeval stronghold was built on a rock rising out of the waters. The ruins of the mighty fortress walls which girded the edge of the rock are still there, and the foundations of the palace of these island princes, but the name of the place is unknown. To the lords of this nameless castle, and to the princes of Orchomenus, the curious habits of their spacious lake were a matter of perpetual concern. The lake, or morass, which fertilized their land, has no river to bear its water to the sea, and its only outlets are underground clefts piercing Mount Toon, which rises on its northern banks, a barrier between the lake and the sea. To help the water to reach these passages, men made canals through the lake, and guarded them by fortresses. Remains have also been found, especially at Pylos and in Lucas and Cephalenia, which show that the coasts and islands of the Ionian Sea, which in Homeric poetry are associated with Nestor and Odysseus, were not outside the Mycenaean circle. At the extreme southwest of the Aegean, there was a Mycenaean community at the beginning of the 14th century, at Ialysis in Rhodes. An old burying place has been dug out, and revealed horizontal rock graves with the arrangement of avenue, doorway, and four-sided chamber, resembling those of Mycenae. The vases found here belong to the best kind of Mycenaean glazed ware, and the absence of earlier pottery suggests that this stage of civilization had not been reached by a gradual development in the place, but that settlers had brought their civilization with them. In Thessaly, the rude life of the Stone Age survived long after Cretan civilization had transformed southern Greece. The land remained comparatively barbarous, and even when, in the late Aegean period, the civilization of the south began to penetrate, it never throve. Thessaly can show no wealthy cities or mighty walls. A few small beehive tombs are the chief record of the heroic age. From this brief survey of the character and range of the Mycenaean civilization, it will be seen that it was an outgrowth of Cretan civilization, marked by peculiarities of its own. The period within which it flourished and declined fell between the 16th and the 11th centuries. The end came with the beginning of the Iron Age, and in Greece iron did not come into general use for weapons and ordinary purposes before the 11th century. Here, too, as in Crete, Egypt supplies evidence bearing on the chronology. 
early in the sixteenth century, Mycenaean vases were represented on a wall painting at Egyptian Thebes. At Gurab, a city which was built in the fifteenth century, and destroyed two or three hundred years later, a number of false neck jars imported from the Aegean have been found, and they belong not to the earlier but to the later period of Mycenaean pottery. And Egyptian evidence is found not only on Egyptian soil, but on both sides of the Aegean. Three pieces of porcelain, one inscribed with the name, the two others with the cartouche, of Amenhotep III of Egypt, and a scarab with the name of his wife, Taya, have been found in the chamber tombs of Mycenae. It is a curious coincidence that a scarab of the same Amenhotep was discovered in the burying place of Yalis in Rhodes. The single occurrence of such a scarab in one place might be an unsafe basis for an argument, but the coincidence seems to point to some special epoch of active intercourse with Egypt in this king's reign. It would follow that, early in the fourteenth century at latest, the period of the chamber tombs and the vaulted tombs began but the earlier sepulchres also supply testimony to Egyptian influence. On an inlaid dagger blade, found in one of the rock tombs on the Mycenaean citadel, we see represented a scene from Egyptian life, ichneumons catching ducks in a river which can only be the Nile. The workmanship is Aegean, not Egyptian, but the Aegean artist knew Egypt. The simplest way of explaining the rise of this civilization is to suppose that the Cretans, when their power expanded after 1600 B.C., descended on various parts of eastern Greece, and, establishing themselves especially in Argolis and Boeotia, planted their own culture among the Greeks. There is some evidence for Cretan settlements and Cretan lordships. For instance, the name of the island Manoa, opposite to Megara, seems to record its settlement from the island of Minos. In the legend of Cadmus and Europa, the founders of Thebes, Europa is the mother of Minos, daughter of Phoenix, and the tradition that Cadmus was the inventor of writing may commemorate the introduction of a Cretan script. Though the story represents Europa as a Phoenician, she was, in the original version, a Cretan princess. As a daughter of Phoenix, she was transferred to Phoenicia, because the Greeks had forgotten that, Long before they were acquainted with the traders of Tyre and Sidon, they had been wont to designate the brown-skinned Cretans as Phoeniques, red men. The name of the hero Phoenix, whom we meet in Homer, may be explained by supposing that he descended from Cretan settlers in northern Greece. Probably some of the principalities which are founded under the aegis of Crete grew strong enough to fling off the authority of the Minoan sovereigns and refused to pay tribute. But in all that concerns the relations of Gnosis to Mycenae and her fellows, the history of the 15th century is hidden from us. Then, about 1400 B.C., Gnosis fell and the glory of Crete departed. The splendid palace was destroyed by fire, and the other great settlements in the island seem to have been overwhelmed in the same catastrophe. This common destruction seems to show that the disaster was the work of invaders, and of invaders who had come simply to destroy and to sail away when the work of ruin was complete. But who the destroyers were we cannot say for certain. Some think that they were the Achaeans, who, as we shall see, rose to great power in Greece in the 13th century, and also made settlements and bore rule in Crete. But although it is not impossible that the Achaeans may have left their northern homes in the regions of the Danube, and reached North Greece in the 15th century, 
there was no convincing evidence that their coming was so early. No new palaces arose at Knossos and Festus. The old civilization was left to live on and decline. The site of Knossos was reoccupied, but its reoccupation does not suggest the abode of new conquerors. It is not impossible that the ruin of the Cretan power was wrought by the lords of the Argolid plain, who had become rivals of the Gnossian kings. At all events, after the fall of Gnossus, Priachean Argolis became the most powerful seat of Aegean civilization. We can make out little as to the mutual relations of the small kingdoms of the prehistoric Greek world. The eminent position of Golden Mycenae herself seems to be established. Her comparative wealth is indicated by the treasures of her tombs which exceed all treasures found elsewhere in the Aegean. But her lords were not only rich, their power stretched beyond their immediate territory. This fact may be inferred from the road system which connected Mycenae with Corinth, and must have been constructed by one of her kings. Three narrow but stoutly built highways have been traced, the two western joining at Cleone, the eastern going by Tinea. They rest on substructions of Cyclopean masonry. Streams are bridged and rocks are hewn through, and as they were not wide enough for wagons, the wares of Mycenae were probably carried to the isthmus on the backs of mules. If the glazed clayware, so abundantly found at Mycenae, was wrought there, and not, as some think, imported from the islands, then the industry of her potteries may have been a source of her wealth. It is not easy to determine whether Mycenae held sway over the whole Argive plain, and especially what was her relation to tyrants. A road leading southward as far as a small hill, which was in later times famous for a great temple of Hera, may show that this site was under the dominion of Mycenae, and it was a place of some importance, for three vaulted hill tombs have been found hard by. Tyrans was an older place of habitation than Mycenae, and it has been suggested that it may have been Tyrinthian kings who first selected the Mycenaean hill as a strong post at the head of the plain and a bulwark against invaders from the north. Argos itself, under the hill of Larissa, must have been a place of importance, and in the 13th century Tyrans seems not to have belonged to Mycenae, but to the lords of Argos. Of the power and resources of the Aegean states, the monuments hardly enable us to form an absolute idea. They were small. It was an age when men might cross a kingdom in a day. The kings had slaves to toil for them. The fortresses and the large tombs were assuredly built by the hands of thralls. One fact shows in a striking way how small were these kingdoms, and how slender their means, compared with the powerful realms of Egypt and the Orient. If Babylonian or Egyptian monarchs, with their command of slave labor, had ruled in Greece, they would assuredly have cut a canal across the isthmus, and promoted facilities for commerce by joining the eastern with the western sea. That was an undertaking which neither the small primitive states nor the Greek states which came after ever had the means of carrying out. End of chapter 1, section 3